This episode is dedicated to Maya, whose kindness was only matched by her creativity. Rest in peace, mate. Kia ora, you're listening to Aotearoa in Focus. Ko Armstrong A couple years back, I had some issues with mental illness. I'll be honest, it was pretty stink, and almost as stink were the services there to quote-unquote help me. Nothing about that is unique, as countless others have the same challenge around the country. But this isn't a chat about my story. Nah, that'd be boring. But it did start me on the thought as a lover of history. What would it have been like if I had had similar issues a century ago? Short answer, bad. I would have been classed as a defective, and that's not an opinion. The Mental Defectives Act declared who was defective and who wasn't. And whether you were a child or adult, if you were deemed to be one, your life could change forever. I want to discuss this issue because the decisions made a century ago shaped our mental health system and society all the way through to the present. I'm going to make a deal with you, just you and me. This episode is going to be depressing at times, so we'll have this sober, sad episode, and then I promise one about people doing good stuff. That sounds like a good deal to me. In the meantime, parts of this will get heavy. So grab a cup of tea, pet a cat, whatever you need to do to take the edge off things as you may need it. This is Aotearoa in Focus, and this is our nation's eugenics movement and the Mental Defectives Act. Eugenics basically is the idea that we can improve the human condition by by changing breeding practices and using some degree of coercion in changing those breeding practices. So that's a very broad definition. That's geneticist and historian Dr Hamish Spencer. I figure that the first thing we need to do is know what eugenics actually is. The goal of eugenics is actually quite laudable, right? And so it's, it's, it's very easy to condemn um, eugenists of the past or, or even of today, but, but for many of them, they wanted to improve the human condition. And, you know, who doesn't want to do that? But the, the bit that we find problematic today, and indeed some people did in the past as well, is a bit about how you do it, right? You do it by... Uh, by changing breeding practices, which in principle meant one of two things. So there was what was called um, subsequently positive eugenics. Positive eugenics is where you encourage, uh, you know, and I'll put it in inverted commas here, so you can't see that unless I tell you, the right sort of people to have more children. So of course, those are are people, you know, like you and me, right? Educated, white, um, especially people like doctors and professors and, you know, that kind of stuff. So eugenics actually is is much more closely associated with what we today call negative eugenics, which is the other part. And again, I want to use uh, um, inverted commas, you know, um, you want to discourage that, quote, wrong, unquote, sort of people from having children at all. So, of course, those are are the criminalistic, uh, the licentious, the adulterers, the criminalistic, and in particular, what were called in the 1910s and 20s, the feeble-minded. So that was a technical term. Um, you don't hear it around today. It certainly, a, you know, today carries enormous pejorative um, connotations, but it didn't at the time. Um, and, and the idea was that you would discourage them from, from having as many children as they did or, in fact, any at all. And you could do that in two ways, two practical ways. Uh, one was segregation. Um, but the other way, much more drastic, of course, is 
um, sterilization, or even, I suppose, I haven't thought about it as in, in that continuum, but you, you know, you could, as the Nazi government did, you could simply kill people. That initially sounds okay when the goal is supporting everybody, and that 100% happened as long as you replace the everybody with whites only. Because this positive eugenics was primarily for Pākehā, Pākehā or British citizens of Aotearoa. That's one of the reasons why we created Plunkett. House camps and scouts were created too, to grow strong white citizens, loyal men that could work and fight, and women that could raise children. All of this is because racial supremacy has a home in it all too. Because on the other side of this, Māori were excluded from Plunkett, on top of other legislation limiting their rights. Our immigration policies work to limit anyone not from Western Europe coming here, not to mention the poll tax. And before you think that this is Lefty Dan judging with modern morals, Theodore Gray, the head of our mental hospitals department, utilised a pretty blunt quote in a report on reforming the sector. New Zealanders still have it in their power, by excluding colour, limiting entry to the best whites, and preventing the unfit from breeding, to become and remain about the finest white strains in the world. Now, I'm sorry I'm loading you with context, but there is so much happening in the early 1900s. And part of that was within the mental health sector, because it had seen some pretty big reforms. The then shiny new Mental Defectives Act led to a more uniform methodology to institutionalise people in a range of new facilities. Though still in a period where our understanding of psychological issues was very limited. Here's disability advocate and historian, Dr Hilary Stace. Institutions, residential schools, farms, schools, farm places, for whatever you've been, whatever you were labelled as. Mm. And at that time also, IQ testing, IQ testing came in about the First World War as a very new, like eugenics, eugenics was seen as a cutting-edge science, cutting-edge science, and then IQ testing was. So you came in with these American, mostly American ideas of IQ testing that was seen as cutting-edge science. So there was one test that you could do to decide, you know, where where people could go based based on, you know, IQ testing and various other things, other types of surveillance, including school, um, school inspectors, all sorts. Mm. I mean, all of them were to lock away from society some of them were permanent some were maybe more temporary but they all the purpose was to segregate and because the big fear was again still of the that this you know these these people were breeding faster and they would pollute the fit the fit face the, the nice white people world war one would play a huge part in things too that's no surprise as a hundred thousand kiwis served overseas during the conflict with eighteen thousand about one in five not making it home. Those arriving back into port, though, would have a myriad of physical and psychological challenges we'd never seen before. In fact, 31,464 veterans were recorded as having some form of long-term disability in 1921. According to Massey Professor Glenn Harper, with our understanding limited, we told many to harden up and get on with it. Quote, Mental illness and suicide, as well as heavy smoking and alcohol abuse, resulted from this approach to the horror the returning soldiers endured during the war. And diagnosed trauma, grief, and the resulting depression and destructive behaviour of many returned soldiers impacted families and relationships, shaping future generations. 
Now, for those with the worst psychological conditions, authorities first bent the rules to quietly place soldiers in Seacliff, and it didn't go well. Soldiers not knowing what would happen to them, families kept out of the loop, and one individual, Private Fear, was found dead on site. Only after the Dunedin RSA kicked up a stink did anything improve. Then there was the debate about mixing veterans with the general population of defectives and facilities. Between the war, those struggling, and the focus on the system, it would be a post-war moral panic that would break the camel's back. Here's Dr Spencer again. Um, New Zealand society was was enormously impacted by World War One in a way that, although we know about it historically, we were inclined to we were inclined to forget. You know, the number of casualties was enormous. I can even remember when I was a kid, um, there were there were elderly ladies who were spinsters, and the reason they were spinsters is that their fiancés. Uh, had been killed in the First World War, or on occasion that they didn't perhaps have a fiance, but there was a shortage of men. So, um, in that respect, but but perhaps more importantly were the economic conditions after the end of the First World War. So, first of all, there was a boom as agricultural products um, were in great demand, um, but there were um, recessions in 1921 and another um, economic contraction in 1926, and in periods of of economic um, distress often lead people to ask what's wrong with society and and what needs to be changed. And at at about that same time, there was widespread concern uh, about a number of um, incidents often that that, uh, involve sexual offenders. And um, some of those were considered to have various mental defects. And there there were a number of newspapers around, um, but the New Zealand Truth was a very important newspaper. Um, Interestingly, started off on the left and moved uh, by the time I, I was a kid, it was certainly uh, coming in from the right, but um, but it, it always had a kind of populist overtone and various other newspapers as well, called for um, for investigations of, of these crimes, what was going on. Um, and so that's what led to the, the Committee of Inquiry into Mental Defectives and Sexual Offenders. And that um, was instituted in, in 1924, but it was a result of, of widespread public um, concern about what was happening in society, which is very hard, as I say, to separate from the economic events of the time. I think we've laid a pretty okay context, if I don't say myself. New laws and facilities, heaps of veterans, and a variety of issues no one fully understood, plus the panic. With all of this, there was... With all of this, the Mental Defectives Act would finally get an update in 1928. A good chunk of it was straightforward. Proving systems, red tape, and so on. You know the stuff. But that eugenics undercurrent would be present too in regulating the lives of defectives. These are the standouts of the Mental Defectives Amendment Act. So Clause 7, for example, required there to be a list of, of, the, of the feeble-minded. Um, you had to be registered, and that list was going to be really important. Clause 15 uh, required the Director of Education to furnish names of mentally defective children to the chair of a eugenic board. So there would be a board called the eugenic board that was to be set up. But the two really, really controversial ones were clause 21, which led to, which would have uh, uh, prohibited marriage between those on the register, or in fact, even any sex between those uh, on the register. And clause 25, which would have allowed the eugenic board to authorize sterilization. So it was clauses 21 and 25 that led to the, um, to, the, to the largest amount of controversy. 
Now, what I'm about to present to you is a condensed explanation of what happened with the law, as it's a long one and only us wonks would want all the detail. Don't worry, I'll release that as a bonus. So the bill entered the house and instead of a cordial professional first reading, well, the opposite happened. Right in the first reading, which is interesting because it's meant to be just an introduction of the bill into Parliament, it's meant to be very brief. Um, immediately, the, there was there was debate and it centred on the clauses to do with marriage restriction and sterilisation, right? So um, uh, Labour's Peter Fraser, for example, uh, was interjecting in Parliament um, about all sorts of wild theory in regard to eugenics. So that's a good quote. Um, but um, the... the uh, Fraser also interjected, for example, at one point about what you hope to achieve by the sterilisation stunt. So right from the beginning, the opposition to the parts of the bill picked up on this um, sterilisation. Things didn't change as the controversy surrounding this was huge, even after select committee and animosity put pressure on the government. Come the bill's third reading, after a heap more arguing and debate, some sterilisation components had been dropped, namely ovaryectomy and castration. PM Gordon Coates wanted things passed, so made it a party vote, whipping most of his members into line. But as a night of debating went into the morning, one last surprise was looming. During breakfast, something happened. I don't know. It's not recorded because, of course, it wasn't public. And at that point, the marriage restriction clause and the sterilisation clause were withdrawn. Um, it's very frustrating that we don't know what happened exactly. And so you kind of have to um, speculate as to you know, just what happened. There was a lot of public opposition to those clauses. This bill was, was in the newspaper every day. And there were people writing letters to the editor, both pro and against, and there were feature articles. Fraser wrote a three-part one that was um, you know, a really long article. Um, and so there, were, there, was, there was lots of debate in the newspapers. There was significant opposition. As I said, the Labour Party and the Liberal Party were both opposed. Um, there were the Catholic Church newspapers that were opposed as well, and um, the, uh, as well as some academics, but not all. But also these aspects, the, the Reform Party, which was the government of the time, in spite of its name, was a conservative party. And, and this was not really a conservative measure, small c conservative. There was an election coming up and no, nobody, no party, no matter what political stripe they are, wants to be seen, you know, trying to get controversial legislation through Parliament on the eve of an election when it's not clear that their own supporters would really be in favour of. So I suspect that was a large part of it. One voice of constant opposition was Peter Fraser. According to Dr Stace, it was more than just a political position. My theory from researching Peter Fraser and Peter Fraser's family and Janet Fraser, his wife, who's one of my research areas, is that Peter Fraser was very anti-sterilisation. He was the leader of the Labour Party in opposition, just a small party at that time. But he had a lot of mental illness in his own family in Scotland. And he and people like uh, Mother Suzanne O'Bear were, were just naturally more inclusive in their attitudes and they didn't discriminate against people because of disability or mental illness. So Peter Fraser fought, fought against that. And so sterilization didn't, didn't get through that, although in other countries like in the US, that, that was, became the norm after that. So what are the consequences of this Amendment Act? Because things didn't just end in 1928. One of the things that happened um, after the um, 1928 
was was debate about just what the law allowed in terms of, uh, in particular, sterilization. Right. So, uh, you know, there were people um, around who argued very strongly that sterilization was was perfectly legal. Theodore Gray, another really interesting character in this story. Gray had gone to the Solicitor General at the time to get an opinion and uh, that whether sterilization was legal. So the Solicitor General argued that it was not, but Gordon went back to a 1932 opinion from the Director General of Health who named it and claimed that it was legal. What Theodore Gray did get out of it was Templeton, the first, um, the first specifically what we later called psychopedic hospitals, which were institutions specifically for children who were considered either, you know, some way morally defective. So they could be um, physically or they could have had intellectual disability, something like autism, which of course wasn't a diagnosis for decades, but, you know, some kind of neurodiversity, learning disability. I mean, I know kids who were families talk about a child who, who, who was hungry in the depression, you know, um, stole a pie and was sent up to Templeton for their whole life, you know. Um, so it was, so he did get that and he personally signed the first, um, the first entrance. So that was our first big um, psychopedic hospital. And we had, we ended up with four of those big, big institutions for children. And uh, you, the assumption was that children would be sent there from like Templeton, they'd usually be sent by two or three. I've got examples of people who were sent as you know, three-year-olds, never really to come out and, and not really for their families to know about them either. So yeah, that's what happened. We, they didn't get institute, they didn't get sterilization, but we also have lots and lots of um, anecdotal stories of um, uh, um, uh, well, unconsented but undocumented sterilizations. You know, people would go on for appendix operations and various things. Um, and eventually they'd find out that that was a sterilization operation. Templeton closed about 1997-8. Kimberley, the last one, didn't close until 2006. So there was people who lived and died and, the, and their lives were probably quite miserable and short mostly. So we talk about lots of unmarked graves around one of those institutions. It is another story that should be investigated, hopefully by the Royal Commission, but you know, there's we know that the, every institution, psychopedic, psychiatric hospital and psychopedic institution will have unmarked graves around because the record keeping was so appalling, if at all. So then even when deinstitutionalization happened, people who were the survivors of these, who are mainly older people by then, older, mostly old, a lot of older men, some who didn't use words to communicate or had lost their use of words, uh, they went into what are called group homes, but they still live, a lot of them still live pretty limited lives um, in, in group homes, which can still be seen as little mini institutions. You know, their participation in the community can be quite minimal. We've spent this time talking about people, and there are some anecdotes and examples I, I, I wanted to use, but I intentionally only use public examples already, just, just out of respect. Perhaps the best-known individual from the period after the 28th Amendment was Norman Madden, an orphan who entered the system in 1934 and was sent to Templeton. He was the focus of the 2004 film Out of Sight, Out of Mind, 
and as a child was examined by Theodore Gray. Quote, I don't think that anyone should have been at Templeton. Templeton was a place for the unwanted. It was a cruel place. If I saw Dr. Gray today, first I'd like to get into a quiet sort of an argument, and then turn around and say this is what I'd like to give you, and give him a good bang on the nose. A good punch on the nose and I'd not feel sorry for it. What right is it for anyone to tell me that I can't have a child? You cannot breed? That's a no-can-do here. As far as I'm concerned, nobody has the right to say that to anyone. Then there's the Kimberley cringe owing to patients at the facility being afraid of abuse when approached. Dr Stace wasn't kidding when she talked about the kid nicking a pie. George Smith was caught stealing from a pie cart and would spend the rest of his life in the system. Now I don't want to assume that the entire sector was evil. There were people with good intentions there and as time passed medication became an option. But sites were routinely away from towns and for people that could have communication difficulties or even just no one on the outside caring about them, they were targets for an insipid culture of abuse for decades with justice never found. I think of it as a leaky home. You can put on a new coat of paint, redo the kitchen, but ultimately its rotten foundations are always present. At the beginning of this, I asked what would have happened if I'd had a breakdown a century ago. If I was lucky, I would have had a short stay, and once I was manageable and could work again, I'd, I'd be released. If I wasn't, then a life incarcerated, potentially abused, and an unmarked grave may have awaited me. Because I was defective, and it was the best for society that I was kept away from it. I'm lucky beyond words that it's just a hypothetical, because for many others it wasn't. Good golly, that got grim. So, I want to end on something hopeful. When this episode on Dr Stace, I'd really like to thank our guests, Dr Hilary Stace and Dr Hamish Spencer. Uh, There will be references in the bio of this, uh, just so you know I wasn't making it all up. And the next episode will be out as soon as I make it. Uh, but I will release some more of the extended audio from uh, both Stace and Spencer, uh, just to fill in a few gaps in case you're interested for even more depth. So, in the meantime, thanks for listening. Cheers. Hi, Dida. Well, you know, as a historian, you look back to look for the future, so things were a whole, whole lot worse 100 years ago. If my don't worry, he's gone, he's watching the cricket. My son, who's in his 30s, mm. if he was born even 10 years earlier, the pressure on me to send him somewhere would have been huge. Yeah. As it happened, he went to a school. I mean, a lot of it was luck. I talk about love and luck as an idea that he was, you know, you, for good outcomes, you need somebody, somebody there as your advocate to love you and to fight for you. And the luck that the right people and support turn up at the right time. So he just had this really great school he went to who would just say, oh, of course, everybody does everything. They all go on school camps right through his schooling. Then he got um, post, he's got, he's had part-time jobs because of that, that attitude. So, but, but, so that's, I mean, so things are getting better. People's expectations rise all the time and it's the young people who are the young self-advocates now people who well self-advocacy is a term particularly for um learning disability or intellectual disability there's a self-advocacy movement that's really started going 
in the, in the 1980s. And we've got people like Sir Robert Martin, who was the, who's, I don't know if you know him, but he's amazing. He's, he grew up in institutions. He was our first um, person with learning disability to get a knighthood. He now runs a UN com, um, committee, you know, so he's, he's still a person with learning disability, but he's really wise, really, and he's huge man around the world because he's in here. So there's people like him who are providing great role models. You also take the long game as a historian. So I've, ever since the, I started hearing about these things, you know, back in the 80s when I first got into this area, we've been wanting a Royal Commission, you know, we needed an inquiry. So you battle it, battle it, battle it. And, you know, the last government said, no way, there's no problem. You know, we've all, it's all been dealt with. It's all in the past, load of rubbish. Jacinda said in 2016, when we, if we get into power, we will have a Royal Commission. So we've got a Royal Commission. You just have to wait. You have to get, you have to be advocating and keeping on and keeping on and keeping on. And the Royal Commission is not perfect. It's got a whole lot of issues, but it can still be involved as a sort of a critical friend, <laughs> critical, critical friend. Um, and they have a huge power to, of their recommendations. And what I really pushed for, because as a historian, I've always seen disability is invisible in our history. You don't, in the history, in the past histories, you don't see a disability chapter in any of our comprehensive histories of New Zealand. So my thing is I'm really pushing for is a good disability archive, which actually has people's stories collected. We go around people's garages and the advocates who are now, you know, some of them are dying off. Some of those older people who've been fighting for decades, where are your records? Where are your stories? We'll keep them, we'll honour them, we'll make school resources and exhibitions. Uh, we'll collect them and preserve them in a very professional way with some co-governance with disabled people, you know, all the right stuff yeah. and the latest archival theory. So that's, that's really my battle now. Other people are doing the active stuff for better support and services. I want the history made visible. <laughs> so that's my area. And I'll just tell about it. I don't think what people think.